Welcome to the Library of Mistakes, changing the world one mistake at a time. Welcome to the Library of Mistakes podcast. I'm Russell Napier, the keeper of the library, a beautifully designed building in Edinburgh housing more than 4,000 books about the mistakes that the world keeps repeating, particularly in finance and business. The idea of the library is to help us all learn from these mistakes and stop making them so often. There are also now libraries of mistakes in Lausanne, in Switzerland and in Pune, in India. Visit librarymistakes.com to find out more. The library is owned by Didasco, a financial educational charity based in Scotland, which also runs an online course called Advanced Valuation in Financial Markets, and its in-person variety, which we hold in London twice a year, called A Practical History of Financial Markets. To find out more about the courses, see the link to Didasco in the podcast show notes. Welcome, everybody. I'm delighted to have with me today Marco Papich, the author of Geopolitical Alpha, an investment framework for predicting the future in a world where we all need, I think we all realize we need more geopolitical input. Marco is one of the few people with an investment background writing about it, and this book is an excellent guide to it. There are lots of reasons why Marco may have more insight into this than other people. Uh, Marco and I have exchanged views in the past. Let's call them full and frank exchanges of views. Is that right, Marco? That's a pretty good uh, suggestion because we both have something. We both have something in common. I was brought up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, uh, so I've got a, a different perspective on some things. Marco, tell us about your youth and uh, your insights into geopolitical alpha that you gained from your youth. Yes, I don't know any other way to share views than frankness, and I think uh, I love that about you as well. I mean, we agree and disagree on many things, and. Uh, I, I grew up uh, in Yugoslavia that was falling apart. I lived through the second highest hyperinflation in human history. Um, and uh, then I left uh, Yugoslavia to go to the Middle East. So I'm one of the very few people who left war by moving to the Middle East. Uh, I was very lucky to live in a beautiful country, Jordan, for three years. That was very peaceful in the mid-90s. But you were definitely aware, you had a heightened awareness of all sorts of troubles that that country had also gone through and could go through in the future. And then, uh, and then, you know, like my life kind of took me to a much more of a first world calm uh, path after that, Switzerland, British Columbia, Texas, Quebec, and now I'm here in California. But uh, yeah, those formative years were spent in a uh, in really interesting environment that at a very young age made you aware of how politics and geopolitics has real implications. Yeah, now, but long before you wrote this book, we used to talk about the constraint framework, and now you formalized it into the book, all of chapter two, called Constraint Framework, Three Pillars. Uh, do you want to outline for us that, uh, what that constraint framework is and how it helps you shape your, your future forecasts on geopolitics? Well, I think, uh, first of all, if we could have all the resources in the world, you know, Russell, if we had all the money in the world, all the time in the world, we would want to focus on what policymakers are thinking. We would want to focus on what they believe in, what their desires and wants are. Um, the problem is we don't have all the resources or time in the world. And so it's very difficult to get inside policymakers' heads. And so what I've done through practice is you create these shortcuts. These aren't neat academic theories. These aren't things that work 100% or even 80% of the time. But they are a way to start. And I just want to be very humble in the beginning and emphasize that my book and my framework is merely that. It's a scaffolding. You know, it's a, it's a way to begin 
for an investor to approach politics systematically. And so how do you do that? You focus on the material reality in which policymakers are embedded. So don't try to figure out what Vladimir Putin wants to do. You know, does he want to recreate the Soviet Union? Does he want to take half of Ukraine, a third of Ukraine? Does he want to create a, you know, Christian Orthodox bloc? Uh, whatever. Focus on what he can do, given the material reality, given the uh, capabilities of the Russian military, given the history of military conquest of Russia, which are actually paltry, given the size, demographics of Ukraine. Given all of these constraints, what is it that a policymaker can do? And I would say that most of the time, you know, uh, this is a much better way for an investor to begin analysis. Now, the, the three pillars that I talk about are really kind of the foundations of this thought. It's Marco didn't just wake up one day and say, you know what we should do? We should focus on this. It's embedded in academic discipline of materialist dialectic. It's embedded in social psychology research that shows that the context often motivates human behavior more than human values, culture, upbringing. And finally, it's uh, also embedded in some of the research that intelligence agencies like CIA have done in the past when they didn't have the human and signals intelligence that they do try to rely on. And that's what I say. If we all had a lot of resources, maybe we could all figure out what policymakers are thinking, but we don't. We don't have the resources as investors. We're private companies. We're individuals. We're trying to make our way. And we don't have all the time in the world because the market is constantly pricing geopolitical events. So... My book is a shortcut. It's a framework. Now, in this book also, you talk about something called Buenos Aires policies, something uh, which uh, I'm also very interested in. Could you explain what they are and where you think we're going to have the so-called Buenos Aires policies? It's a huge structural shift for any investor. Uh, and I think it's important that we understand what, the con the, the, what it is and what the, uh, what the consequences are of it. Well, you know, I think your listeners, Russell, are going to be very familiar with this because I think you and I are basically like aligned 150% in this. Um, I've read your writing about the CAPEX cycle and why it's coming, coming, why, why it's here. And uh, the Buenos Aires consensus is sort of my way that I got to the same conclusion you did. Um, basically, the pendulum of politics is swinging for a number of reasons. Uh, demographic, income inequality, all sorts of reasons, from the Washington consensus to the Buenos Aires consensus. Now, these are, these are not real. These are just shortcuts. What is the Washington consensus? It's an intellectual shortcut to explain a set of policies and best practices that emerged in the 1980s from the Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher revolutions. So, you know, free trade is part of that, but so is privatization, deregulation, removing the government from the economy, laissez-faire economic system. These are all the things that basically came to us from the 80s. By the way, why did they come to us from the 80s? Because the 70s were terrible, <laughs> right? So the median voter, which is the ultimate constraint in my framework, by the way, especially in democracies, but even outside, the median voter, this mythical mathematical concept, learned that state intervention, pro-cyclical fiscal policy, profligate monetary policy did not work. And they learned that lesson painfully over a decade, not over a month or two or even 24 months of high inflation. No, 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 no. It took a decade of suboptimal policy and economic outcomes in the 1970s. And then you had this revolution. Now, that set of policies 
was packaged by the IMF and World Bank and exported around the world. That's why you call it the Washington Consensus. It's a shorthand for all the things we learned in the 70s and implemented in the 80s. My view is that for a number of different reasons, the pendulum is now swinging the other way. And just as laissez-faire and Ronald and Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher revolution overshot its mark, we probably overdid it. We overapplied the lessons of the 80s across the world to maybe some countries that didn't need it. Maybe some countries didn't need more supply. Maybe they needed more demand, you know? Just as we overdid the supply side revolution, we're not going to overdo whatever the heck it is that we're in that I create a new shorthand for, which I call the Buenos Aires consensus. Now, obviously, I picked Buenos Aires because of Argentina. I'm trying to wake people up, like trying to be sexy. I don't actually believe that like the United States of America will become Argentina. But I do think that asymptotically, we're now approaching that world, not whatever it is that Thatcher and Reagan envisioned. And at the heart of this, I think, is a generational conflict where if you were born after 1985, you have no memory, either like your own experience or even that of your parents, really, that you care at least, of how state intervention is bad. You know, so you don't actually have the same view. Meanwhile, it's very difficult for you to get a high paying job. You're saddled with debt. Wealth creation has been difficult for your generation. So you're sitting 35, 40 years old, maybe, and, and definitely younger. And for you, industrial policy led by the state seems like a great idea. Yeah, we need more chips. Let's have the state do it. Hmm, okay. You know, we need more redistribution of income. We need more state interventions to ensure that every deposit in every bank is secure. Um, and that's fundamentally a political reason for this pivot. Uh, that I think is happening and that I think we'll see um, more state intervention, more financial repression, which obviously is something that you have been at the forefront of talking about in the world, and, uh, and a greater demand for CapEx spending, which will lift you know, um, inflation permanently in the world. And by the way, a lot of the things that I say we need CapEx spending for are political decisions. Like we've made a political decision, China's evil. Five years ago, China was fine. Now China's evil. Okay, cool. We need to rebuild factories all over the world, inefficient factories. Do you think the TSMC lab uh, fab in Arizona is going to produce high quality chips? Good for you. I have, you know, some other products that are crappy to sell you if you believe that. <laughs> and then on top of that, we decided climate change is also going to kill us all in the next 10 years. So we're going to like not invest in fossil fuels. We are going to invest in green technology. A lot of these things, I'm not, I'm not making fun of them because I, I don't think they're real. I'm just saying that the speed and the dramatic effort that we're going to put into it is, I think, being led not by concerns about China or climate change. I think there's, an, there's, an, there's a deeper reasoning. And that deeper reasoning is that the low, low growth, low inflationary environment became politically unsustainable. We had it for 10, 12 years, and now you have the pendulum swinging the other way. Well, well, we have a proclamation of intent from none other than the president of France, who said, I am not afraid to admit that the government of France is back in industrial policy. Uh, he said that about two years ago. I think most people just ignore it. But, you know, that, I think it was a clear, very clear direction to travel. But it's not something that markets seem able to digest quickly. Uh, and uh, to, in my opinion, I haven't digested yet. There's, a, there's a one line, there's many lines in your book that jump out. But this one, I think, is particularly interesting. 
yes, Europe will also engage in Buenos Aires policies, but I doubt that the pendulum away from laissez-faire will swing as hard and fast as in the U.S. When most people listening to this think of the U.S. as the kind of bastion of free market capitalism, you're forecasting that it would move the steering wheel hard over faster than Europe. Is that still your forecast? And why the why the confidence, maybe given your three-pillar constraint analysis, that the U.S. will be going faster on this than uh, perhaps the Europeans are? Well, you know, everything in the markets is relative. And so I have this one diagram poorly constructed. I will be the first to admit it. This data is very iffy. But in this diagram, I show a left-right axis. And I use a, a number of different variables to kind of calculate who is, which countries are on the right end of the spectrum, sort of laissez-faire, and which are more on the dirigist side. And if you look at it, like France is already as left as it's going to be. So I actually think France is moving more to the right. Now, in absolute terms, you could say, well, Marco, that's ridiculous and that's fine. But in relative terms, I think that's correct. I mean, look, Russell, we're, we're taping this. We're recording this on March 22nd. What's happening in France right now? You know, there's massive public protest because the president of France is trying to raise retirement age. He's trying to reform their version of Social Security. So I think that empirically, I have been correct on this view that France is moving marginally more to the right. Now, in absolutes, the starting point is clearly more dirigist. What I think the market is not understanding or like appreciating yet is that the United States of America, which in, in absolute terms is far more laissez-faire, agreed. We all agree on that, but it's moving to the left from that absolute position. And I think the market prices relative moves, not the absolutes. The absolutes are in the price. So why is the United States and United Kingdom, by the way, as well, why are these two states moving the most to the left? Well, because they move most to the right. So the median voter in these states is most disappointed with the status quo. And I think that this is a feature, not a bug, of the socioeconomic decisions taken by these countries since the Second World War. Europe, continental Europe, is inoculated from um, wild swings politically. Why? Because they turned fascist. They have a history of turning fascist or losing uh, their countries to communist revolutions. From 1918 to 1945, you had countries on the continent of Europe either descend into outright fascism or come near it, like France in the 1930s. Or you had actual communist revolutions, such as that ended German Empire in 1918. And so they constructed a socioeconomic you know, um, contract after Second World War that emphasized things like redistribution and an onerously expensive social welfare state that they're now trying to unwind, by the way. That's what Macron is basically doing in 2023. On the margin, he's trying to alleviate the costs, the burden of financing this vaccine against extremist politics. It's a very expensive vaccine and an onerous one that probably in the long term should be reformed. The United States and the United Kingdom don't have this history. You know, and what I would say about that is they haven't been burdened by this very, very painful history of dramatic extremism. And so they, they lack that inoculation, one. And two, 
their welfare state is not as onerous and expensive. And I think that the median voter in the United Kingdom and in the United States is therefore moving the most to the left on the economic spectrum. And I want to just emphasize, this isn't about social stuff, I'm not talking about abortion or gun rights or whatever. I'm talking in terms of economic policy, I see the United States and the United Kingdom moving more to the left. So you have French President Macron, who is trying to raise retirement age in France. In the United States of America, suggesting that Social Security should be reformed is toxic. You know, Donald Trump is against it. Joe Biden is certainly against it. And so this idea that we can have reform is just laughable. I mean, we went 10 years ago, we had the Tea Party asking for fiscal responsibility and prudence. And and, and I would argue in, in many bad ways as well. It wasn't completely uh, an honest attempt to kind of reform fiscal policy in the U.S. There was a lot of like just hating on Obama. We all agree with that. But today, the Republicans are asking for $150 billion worth of cuts. I mean, that's their big proposal. That's it, Russell. Russell, we will have a government shutdown this year, over $150 billion. So even Republican Party in the U.S. is now unwilling to go against the median voter and say, hey, look, we need to tighten our belts. We need to do some reforms. Let's uh, talk about that change from left to right, et cetera, et cetera, in relation to something that happened after you published the book, which was the destruction of the Liz Trust government by the bond market. And of course, in this book, you quote the famous quote from James Carville about the power of the bond markets. So uh, we have two political parties in this country, the United Kingdom, which are certainly closer together post that destruction of that particular government. Is this the shape of things to come? What role do you think bond markets will play in this discipline, this changing of the swing across from one way to the other, and maybe some idea of what the Buenos Aires consensus might do about that? Well, look, I mean, to me, when that happened, I thought of you, you know, because again, you have been on this train, on this uh, fiscal uh, financial repression view for a very long time. So what happens is the bond market says, hold on a minute. This has gone too far. And pension funds start, you know, experiencing pain, just like Silicon Valley Bank experienced pain. And policymakers come to its rescue with effectively what I think was yield curve control. Now, nine out of 10 people in finance tell me, Marco, look, we respect your views, but, you know, your background is really politics and geopolitics. You don't understand how pension fund works. This was an isolated isolated, idiosyncratic moment when the government didn't do yield curve control, they merely ensured the functioning of the pension system, which obviously is reliant on the bond market. And I'm sitting there and I'm saying like, literally the fact that you know this detail makes you incapable of analyzing what's going on. Of course, when bond yields rise, things are going to break. Of course, like, yes, that's... So if policymakers then rush to the aid of the system, that to me is illustrating it's revealing preferences it's revealing the preferences of policymakers for lack of pain for lack of accountability and for lack of you know um taking your medicine comeuppance so i think that the episode in the united kingdom which i know you know infinitely more than i do about so i'm being very kind of like humble here but what it spoke to me was that what's the way this is going to end is not with bond yields at 11%, <laughs> please. If Italian BTPs went from, what was it, 13% at their height 
to like below the U.S. 10-year yield, if Italy managed to resolve its crisis, don't you worry. Policymakers will wrestle with the bond market and they'll win. But they'll do so through yield curve control, which I think will have consequences in other parts of the catch-up tube. You know, so we will be kind of trying to squeeze here. It'll be popping somewhere else. And I think the obvious answer where this all pops must be currencies. So, you know, that's what Japan did on purpose. They instituted yield curve control in, in part to weaken the yen. I think in the case of the United Kingdom, United States, if we do this, that might not be like the implicit reason or the stated reason, but I do think that's eventually going to be the consequence. A word that popped up earlier, dirigiste. We're, we're dealing in French words today, laissez-faire, dirigiste. Uh, it's not a word that nearly everybody, maybe everybody listening to this understands. It, it's fascinating. We had the uh, editor-in-chief of Bloomberg at the Library of Mistakes last week, and he went and wrote an article about the movement to a dirigiste financial system. Uh, that's a comment and a analysis I completely agree on. But perhaps you could explain to those listening what this system is, why it's different from the system we've uh, lived through, uh, and what that means in, in, in geopolitics if we move to such a system. Yeah, so I think uh, the first thing we should remember is dirigist systems are still capitalist, but the government has a role in that capitalist system. And it favors, it doesn't pick winners and losers, but it ends up favoring certain sectors over others. And in doing so, the first order effects are clear. There'll be more semiconductors. They'll be built domestically, like we get that. But second and third order becomes more difficult to predict. And they quite often become quite onerous and inefficient. So when the government starts, you know, so like, again, I don't want to sound like an acolyte of the Chicago school or anything like that. I mean, there are moments in the development of a country where a dirigist policy makes sense. Industrial policy makes sense, um, especially in early stages when, so, when the, a very visible hand has to direct capital where maybe it wouldn't go. And I think Professor Mariana Matsukato makes a very valid point in her excellent book, The Entrepreneurial State, that when states create goals, very optimistic, very hard to reach goals and finance them, good things do tend to happen. Like the moonshot, I, I keep, you know, she, she references this and I love her analogy, the moonshot was probably one of the most wasteful, idiotic things we humans have ever done. We put a man on the moon and didn't go back for 50 years because there's literally nothing on the moon. It was completely a pissing contest between two superpowers. But, you know, the technological innovation that flowed from this endeavor was very good. Um, Donald Trump's Operation Warp Speed to get a vaccine. Again, a good example of how a state, when it gets involved, can get things done. The problem is when that becomes the setting of the regime. Like it's not less affair with some visible hand. It becomes a very visible fist directing almost every sector in the economy towards a certain goal. And uh, you are obviously an expert at how this works out in the financial system. To me, what's a little bit more interesting because I'm just not as you know, like uh, adept at really analyzing banks, to me, what's more interesting is the industrial policy on a sectoral level. And so you have the United States of America, which has now become completely obsessed 
with 5G, which in a couple of years is going to be completely like outdated. So we're now obsessing about 5G and China's role in it. We're also starting to obsess about semiconductor um, policy. And so in the effort to basically take China out of the five nanometer chip game, we have ceded the 28 nanometer to 40 nanometer to China completely. So why is this important, for example? Well, because the Pentagon generals that have decided on this arbitrary level of nanometers clearly don't seem to understand that seven to five nanometer chip is only useful for phones and will never be used because they're too expensive and too small in things like cruise missiles. So China is about to become a world leader in 28 to 40 nanometer segment, which they're more than comfortable doing. That's why they didn't retaliate, for example, to the October 7th uh, export ban. But that is the segment, the 28 to 40, that is almost relevant to everything that matters in terms of peer-to-peer competition. Like the world is not going to be won on five nanometer chips. It's going to be won on 28 to 40. And so, you know, this is just a small example. I don't mean to like dwell on it, but it's a good example of when the government decides to get that involved in a sector decision of how the consequences are actually quite difficult to predict and may blow back in the government space. But we now as investors, because of a shift from laissez-faire to dirigist model, have to incorporate politics and geopolitics and policy and regulation much more than we have like 10 or 20 years ago. This is now as important as valuations and as important as anything else. Obviously, I'm literally talking my own book. Uh, and I'm not the first to say it. I mean, Ian Bremmer wrote about this much earlier than I did. Um, and so other people have been saying that the consequence of 2008 great financial crisis will be the re-entry of the government into the economic system and that the consequence will be loss of prestige and moral high ground by the Chicago School and laissez-faire economics. That theory will lose the high ground. You know, and that's when the going gets tough, the tough get going. I often wonder if that should be the other way around. It's when the tough get going that the going gets tough, particularly when it comes to the, uh, the government. We've actually got a long way through discussing your book without really discussing China. And uh, if you mention the word geopolitics, everybody thinks first about China. So I wanted to read an extract from the book uh, and then get your comment on it because it's in your constraint-based framework and it comes up with a rather different view on the relationship between America and China. So this is rather a long chunk, but I think it's it's worth reading out. The greatest risk to global order and peace is American miscalculation of Chinese intentions, not actual Chinese aggression. My constraint-based framework suggests that Beijing is far more constrained than U.S. policymakers seem to think. Chinese leaders are worried about their growth trajectory and the sustainability of a move up the value curve. If the U.S. pushes Beijing too hard on trade and the economy, it will threaten the primary directive for China, escaping the middle income trap. And that is when Beijing would have to respond with aggression. So can you uh, elaborate on this and these mistakes that you think America's making and what the consequences might be? When you started reading that segment, I got nervous because, you know, it was three, four years ago that I wrote the book. Like, what is Russell going to pull out of the book? I'm sure you can find many things that were wrong, but I'm very glad you picked that one because that's not just correct, but literally Chinese leaders just told us that. They had their two sessions a week ago. (laughs) 
literally a week ago and they literally quoted from my book basically not literally but you know they what they what you just read is what xi jinping and the new president uh, premier li effectively said to the us you are trying to contain us and there is no like list of demands you can say whatever you want about donald trump but he came to china with a list of demands now we can disagree like buying more soybeans and coal seems pretty stupid to me like if you're an american president maybe you should ask china to buy more of some other stuff not coal and soybeans but donald trump came to china punched it in the nose and said look here's what i want the problem right now russell is that america doesn't have a list of demands anymore they doesn't you know no amount of jake sullivan's soliloquies is going to convince me that the white house strategists have any idea what they want from china they can't agree and that's because domestically in the united states talking to china has become toxic and you have a democratic president who inherently by being a democrat is insecure democrats democratic presidents have a long history well before george w bush invaded every country that he could spell well before that there's a long history in the United States of America of democratic presidents starting wars. Why? Because they have to prove that they're tough domestically. Their maneuvering room domestically is very narrow. And so you have a Biden administration that is basically trying to contain not a particular segment of Chinese economy. They're just trying to contain Chinese growth. And I think that that is a very dangerous situation because no country in the world you know, whether you dislike its human rights policy or its ideology or whatever, but no country in the world can basically accept being contained from economic growth. And that's the danger. The danger is a lack of negotiations, a, a lack of like, hey, here's what we want from you. Here's how you can accomplish it. And it can't be something like nebulous, like we want you to respect human rights better. You know, like, I mean, it's got to be specific. What is it that America wants China to do? And I think there's an inherent danger in this happening. Chinese policymakers, basically at the NPC, at the two sessions, as I said, said, look, containment will lead to war. It did with Japan. And Japan was far more aggressive, by the way, than China. Like if you look at the 1930s, Japan invaded every country in its neighborhood. Um, so I think that lack of policy clarity from the U.S. is a real problem. And I think the only way it's going to get resolved in the near term um, is a change in administrations. So I actually think if you had a Donald Trump 2.0 administration, it would probably be bad for 80% of things under the sun. But the one thing that Donald Trump probably could do is sit down with China. No one's going to accuse Trump of being soft in China, for God's sakes. So Republicans would have more domestic maneuvering room to negotiate with China. Another Biden administration I think would also be a little bit more successful. You know, they don't have a re-election coming, but it's going to be difficult. Well, those who subscribe to Library of Mistakes will have seen Martin Lees on our YouTube channel uh, talking about climate change. And when he was over, we discussed which form of government could best cope with climate change, democracy or something else. Uh, in your book, you have this incredible section on democracy. And I just want to read it out again and uh, read it out. There is a reflexive relationship between the median voter, that's the public at large, and reality. If every voter suddenly demanded a real, uh, a teal Hyundai Sonata, I'm pretty sure they would get one. A deranged 
confused or simply mistaken policymaker is quickly brought back to reality by constraints, one of which is the median voter. But a hysterical society becomes a material constraint in itself. The median voter reigns in policymakers, but society, the median voter, has no such immediate force constraining its actions. As a result, the time it takes for an entire society to return to sanity is unknowable and impossible to forecast. Right. Tell us, which societies did you have in mind, Marco, when you wrote that particular bit a few years ago? And has any of your opinions on the hysterical uh, changed? So, um, you know, I think that the COVID emergency crisis, if you will, is a good example of this, um, where, you know, reasonable, well thought out, uh, fact based scientific policies were basically shouted down as being, you know, ideological. So you had this, this is this this incredibly fantastic moment where, you know, very middle of the road, you know, gentle, mild mannered Swedes, who had been the north star of liberal America, who had been praised for their redistribution system, for their education system, for pretty much everything under the sun, suddenly became vile Trumpists. <laughs> You know, and poor Swedes, you know, we're just like, wait, why are you picking on us? We're just doing what we all agreed to do. If there is a respiratory virus like this, we're literally using the playbook you're using. There was actually a quote where one of their chief scientific officers said, we are using the playbook we all agreed on. You tore up the playbook. And so COVID, I think, was a good example where social media and this hysteria takes over. And the pendulum swings way too far to one side. And I think the danger of our social media society is that when you yell fire in a crowded theater, it's not a crowded theater anymore. It is the world. You're yelling fire in a crowded world. And I think the latest iteration of this is the banking crisis that we have in the United States right now. You had a Silicon Valley bank, which is really a bank for tech bros who really have been innovative, completely frivolous innovation that nobody really needs over the past 10 years. I would say the 1990s and early 2000s, fine, God bless tech. Last 10 years, we probably haven't really invented anything anybody needs. And so trillions of dollars have flowed into this particular segment. And for some reason, these supposedly extremely intelligent people decided to put all their eggs in this single basket called SVP. <laughs> So you have concentrated risk, it blows up, and then Twitter convinces Yellen and Jay Powell that this is systemic. Now, I'm being immensely glib. I'm not saying it's not systemic, I mean, and that they made a mistake. I don't want to judge policymakers on, on this. But the fact of the matter is, I think social media, just like with COVID, and just like previous to COVID, Islamic State, which, you know, suddenly made people in the middle of America, like in Kansas or um, Omaha, think that they were going to be killed and their heads were going to be cut off, so they need to vote for a demagogue. The Islamic State, COVID, financial sector, all risks don't, like, this isn't binary. World of politics and geopolitics is never a zero or one. It's not binary. Of course, these are risks. But the policy responses to each suggest that policymakers are being led by reputational risk rather than by strategic foresight. And so that's why I wrote that chapter in my book. It's chapter eight. I know exactly which one it is, because both with Islamic State and COVID, 
I, as a investor, as an analyst, underestimated the threat initially because I didn't respect the ability of hysteria in our modern society to take over. Well, when I read your comments on hysteria, I was reminded of another book. Now, don't worry, the author is long dead. He's not in competition. His name is Charles Mackay, the famous author of Extraordinary Popular Delusions of the Madness of Crowds. Uh, yeah. And this is what he had to say on, the, uh, on, the, on this particular issue. Men, it has been well said, think in herds. It will be seen that they go mad in herds while they only recover their senses slowly, one by one. So this is going to take a while, if you're right, before this hysteria disappears and the median voter continues to demand whatever he continues to demand and policymakers continue to deliver whatever is demanded. That alone, if it's correct, is a major change in the way the world works. Marco, we are out of time. Time has ticked by very quickly. I think one thing all investors know is that we need geopolitical input. I don't think anybody doubts it but nobody knows where to get it from. I'll tell you where to get it from. Uh, Marco Papage's book, Geopolitical Alpha, an investment framework for predicting the future. Where else are you going to get it? So, Marco, uh, you're in the right place at the right time. Again, uh, long may I continue. I hope some of these forecasts are wrong. I hope most of my forecasts are wrong. Uh, and I hope we get a much better and brighter world. Uh, but if you want to try and understand the world, I strongly recommend the book. And thank you for joining me today. Oh, absolutely. And Russell, you've been... Uh a mentor and someone who's encouraged me in my career since I was 29 years old. So, um, and I always say this to you and you're always like, I don't even remember that, but you are, uh, thank you so much for everything you've done. And I think it's great that you have this platform now, which is a library of mistakes. I think it's awesome. So thank you so much. Thanks Marco. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. The Library of Mistakes is based in Edinburgh. To explore it in person, simply go to libraryofmistakes.com, register as a reader, and book your visit. It's all free. And to enjoy nuggets from our extensive collection of books, watch videos of our talks, and keep up to date with what we're up to, do follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Library of Mistakes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform. <laughs>